Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. This is going to be, I have a feeling, a pretty emotional podcast. I have the fortune, the great fortune of having Emily Garnett on with me. Emily, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. You're usually I talk about kind of your business first, but I think with you, everything's so integral to your story. Um, I want to change it up a little. Your first of all, your um, website is emilyrgarnett.com. Yep. and that, that's in that will be in show notes. But I kind of want to go. Can we just start and kind of get through your growing up and kind of your background and getting married and all that stuff? And we're going to jump in because your story is your website, pretty much. It is. It is. And and I, I mean, my story is well, without sounding kind of too uh, you know kind of diminutive. My story is my story. Like it's it's everything that has happened has created the blog and the website and every you know the worst things have manifested some of the best things. Isn't so. that always true? And a hundred percent of entrepreneurs on my podcast, it's been almost a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, their business was born from their struggle and yours, yeah. yours was, uh, it, this is a different story. Let's just jump in. Tell me where you grew up and about who you are. So I am, um, my name's Emily Garnett. I'm 33. I currently live in the suburbs of New York City. We just moved out of, excuse me, just moved out of the city a year ago last week um, after living wow. in Manhattan for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, we had just, we, we bought our first house. We lived in a one bedroom apartment, uh, myself, my husband, and my, my son, my toddler son for two years uh, in order to save for the house. And then got out of Dodge. But I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, went to school in California, moved out of, uh, left California for New York to follow a boy who immediately upon arriving here broke up with me. But, uh, you know, that's always how it happens. Then I found my husband. We met. We lived in the city for, um, you know, we since we were 22. And um, I went to law school out here, and I'm an elder law attorney. So my background is in guardianships and Medicaid benefits, public benefits, and um, adult capacity issues, which... I kind of floundered around a lot trying to find my path. My, I come from a long family of attorneys and my, both my parents are attorneys. Both my grandfathers are attorneys. My brother's an attorney. Um, and I was so insistent that this wasn't going to be my path. And then I was really into public health and then kind of got into this little tiny intersection of health benefits and the kind of the the legal issues within uh, health and public benefits and adult capacity. So 
uh, aging people or people with uh, special needs that have that that need someone to be their um, legal decision maker. So making financial decisions, medical decisions, um, personal needs decisions, like where they live. And I kind of, it's such a small little niche field and I really loved it. I loved being able to be the one to, uh, you know, step in and have the resources to get people especially in New York, you get a lot of older people who are living on their own, who don't, you know, have family nearby or have family around. Um, and, and who have lived these pretty extraordinary lives. And so you're kind of the, the caretaker of those, those very, very precious, uh, you know, stories. And so I did that for a few years. And then when my son was born, I uh, left my day job to stay home with him and I was working a little bit here and there just on a couple of cases to wrap up loose ends. So I served as an adult guardian for uh, like a court appointed guardian for people. So we're living in the city. We moved, we bought this house, we moved to the suburbs. We were trying to have a second baby and life was, I was, you know, a stay at home mom essentially. And life was like, perfect. Like, you know, when you just kind of hit that zenith where you're just like, God, this is great. This is exactly where I thought my life was going. And I'm so happy. And, and we're, you know, the, seeing the fruits of our hard work. My son was two, he was just about to turn two when we moved. And it was just, we found our dream house in our dream town. And we were just so, you know, so happy so hopeful for what the future held. So we were trying to have a second baby. We was trying to get pregnant. I went to my primary care doctor a couple weeks after we moved just to get checked out, do some blood work. I had had some kind of weird nagging aches and pains in my ribs and my hips. And when I say weird nagging, I'm downplaying the severity of them, I think, without meaning to. They were horrible. It was, I was in a lot of pain, but I kind of just had to push it back and keep moving along. My doctor found a lump in my breast. She said, go get it checked out. So I said, she's like, I don't think it's anything, but, but due diligence, get it checked out. And you guys, you guys had, no, I'm just going to jump in because you guys had known each other at this point for like 10 or 12 years. 10 years. Yeah. And you've been, you just celebrated your fifth anniversary. We, yeah. Yeah. We celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary. Um, November 3rd of last year was our fifth anniversary. November 6th was our son's second birthday. November 9th, I got diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. 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 Six days span of six days, our life changed forever. At, at 32. At 32, yeah. And thank God for your primary doctor. I, I know, I know. And and I've had so many people say, you know, she saved your life. And I'm like, well, you know, I, that's her job. And, and not yeah. to downplay that because she's wonderful. She's amazing and very much likely did save my life. But um yeah, it was just, I, I, we went, we showed up to get the ultrasound, the imaging work, and she, uh, the tech, she starts the exam and she looks at me and she goes, 
I'm going to go get the radiologist. And I was like, what? Like jokingly, I was like, am I pregnant? And she's like, no. (laughs) And just like leaves the room. And, and, um, the radiologist comes in and she's like, we want to run more tests. And meanwhile, Felix, our son is with my husband in the waiting room because none of us think this is going to like take more than 15 minutes. It took 11 hours. We were there for 11 hours getting tests, getting a biopsy, meeting with the social worker and the oncologist and the breast surgeon. Like when you go to appointments and they're like running two hours late and they're like, oh, they had to fit someone in. It was an emergency. Yeah, I was, I was that emergency. So it was, it was crazy. And I, you know, I, I got my mammogram, so I'm almost 48. So I got them when I was supposed to. I actually got them a little early because it runs in my family. Yeah. And they found two lumps in my left breast and I had to wait a week to go in for the ultrasound. And then at the ultrasound, I didn't think, they told me I wasn't going to get my results. And that, so thank God again. I mean, when it's all coming down, you don't want, waiting is the worst thing you can possibly do. And, And for me- they just, we figured out it was benign and I have two Thank lumps God. and I yeah. get them checked every six months. I just go straight into ultrasound and right. you know, I, I, I did that for three years. And then they said, look, nothing's changed for three years. So get your annual mammogram. And mm-hmm. as long as nothing's changed on the mammogram comparatively from one year to the next, then this is fine. But I've been through that process of just finding the lump and waiting and then going in and waiting and how, so I'm glad that you were the emergency that made everyone else yeah. take a back seat. But it's so horrifying, right? It's like that, that, that space and time, it's like Schrodinger's breast. Like it's, um, you know, uh, again, it, but it's, um, yeah. So, so we got diagnosed and that, but they, you know, I mentioned I had had this pain and they still really couldn't explain it. So we went for a second opinion and the oncologist we met with like takes, you know, five minutes. And we, I, t- I described this pain to her and she looks at me and she goes, I'm sending you for a PET scan tomorrow. A pet, PET scan is like the granddaddy of like medical imaging. It's, they inject you with a radioactive dye. You have to fast for it. And then you sit there and wait for the dye to be absorbed. And then they scan your whole body and you know, they see if there's any metabolic activity that's abnormal and that shows tumor activity. And this was right around Christmas time. Um, so it had been a couple of weeks. And at this point, we're scheduling surgery, trying to, you know, plan for mastectomy and chemo. And she's like, yeah, no, we're not, we're not doing surgery. We're not doing chemo. Your bones lit up like a Christmas tree. Like, oh my God, am I fucking Christmas tree? And uh, she's like, so that puts you at stage four, which means it's metastasized. That's end stage. Like, you, there's no stage five. No, I, I will. Yeah. We know yeah. what stage five is. I, I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, so, yeah. So, holy cow. And you're 32. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there we were, you know, in this you know, in this new house with this two-year-old trying to make sense of our life that had just been completely shattered. Can I ask you a couple questions? Yeah. Okay. So when they found the lump, 
often was the mastectomy required or that was because I know when they found lumps, I instantly said, I'm getting, a mis- I'm, they're going to remove my entire left breast. And everyone's like, that's so extreme. And I'm like, I don't care. I, I don't want any chance of anything left behind. What was it like for you? Well, so for me, I was not, I mean, the mastectomy itself didn't really freak me out because I was like, you know what, we'll do it. Like, that's fine. But the placement of where my breast lumps were, were such that the doing just a lumpectomy was not even an option okay. because they were so deep. And so placement, oh, hold on, I have a cat here. Charlie. If you guys could see the cat, the cat's very cute. (laughs) He's very cute. He comes and says hello to almost every interview. (laughs) He's such a little buddy. But um, so it wasn't possible. There was no choice. It wasn't possible. So I had two. It was it was a considered a multifocal lump, a multifocal mass with calcifications, which are I didn't know what calcifications were. I can't imagine most people do. That means that they're giving that that the tumors are breaking off little pieces of little calcified pieces, and they're in, it's like shrapnel, like in your breast, and um, wow. that are yeah. So it's um, and be, if you have calcifications in this cancerous pattern, they have to remove those because those are also uh, considered malignant. So for me, it wasn't so much, it was the size and placement of my masses because I had two and one was really deep behind my, my nipple. So it was really deep into the breast tissue, which is why no one could find it. And... Um, and then I had these calcifications throughout my breast tissue. So there was just no tissue that could have been saved. Um, and so I was like, okay, fine, let's do it. Like mastectomy, lop them off. Like, you know, not to be glib about it, but I was just really, I, I was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a case manager and a lawyer. And so I jump into that like case management mode really fast. Like I get into the point where I'm just like, I'm, let's do this. Let's take some notes. Let's figure it out. Let's, uh, um, you know, let's get moving. So, right. Which is a great place to be. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of emotion, but there's also some amount of analytical, and I prefer when my brain hits that for a little bit. Um, so, okay, so now you get this PET scan, and she's like, no, it's in your bones. And like, what do you do with that information? Okay, so I freaked out and cried and stayed in bed for like two weeks. Um, which was also Christmas time, so not a great time to just be like a hermit in bed. But um, I, it was so. Like, I'm not someone that is easily shocked. Like, and I can process a lot and keep my cool. And it took me months to fully process, like to replay that over and over in my brain, and 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 really absorb what was my new reality like what was happening it was yeah unbelievably difficult and um so i my oncologist fortunately is you know amazing and she has this wonderful team and we 
got down to business and she's like, okay, we're going to put you in chemical menopause. Your treatment's going to be two shots every month to uh, strengthen my bones and shut down my ovaries. So I would be you know, fully in menopause because my tumors were hormone driven. So any estrogen in my body is fueling my breast cancer. And we're, she's like, there are these great new treatments that are really promising. I think you'd be a good candidate for it's two pills a day, no chemo, no radiation, no surgery. You just pop these pills every morning. And, and, and it's, it was, it's so strange to me because I feel like my diagnosis is so severe and my treatment feels so like humane. <laughs> like you think about chemo and how brutal it is. And I you know, have been really fortunate. I haven't had to go through that yet. I've been able to just, you know, continue living this new facet of my life without having to lose too much of it too quickly. So November, you find the cancer in your breast. December, you find out it's metastasized to your bones and you're stage four. Yeah. You're taking a couple different things. You didn't get, it didn't make you sick. Cause that was one of my first questions. I mean, they are, they, they don't make me sick like chemo sick. They, um, the menopause has, we, is, is really hard on my body because my body just fights it. So getting those shots, the, the, it's called Lupron and it shuts down estrogen production in my body and it just wreaks havoc on, it, it has been so hard on my body. So because of that, we opted to just have my ovaries removed. We, I actually had a full hysterectomy like two and a half weeks ago. Yeah, I know. When I read your timeline, I was like, Emily, you had a full hysterectomy less than three weeks ago. I know, I know. And and it was um it was laparoscopic. So I just have these four little incisions and I was I was up and moving around a couple of hours after the procedure. And I actually so really funny story. I was so worried about like, cause they give you a lot of drugs and the anesthesia will really stop you up. And I was so worried about getting really constipated from, from this procedure. And it was like in my head. And so as I'm coming out of the anesthesia, I, I, I started panicking and I'm screaming to the nurses, I have to shit. I have to shit. Oh my God, I'm going to poop and it's right there. And I like thought, oh my God, what's going on? I'm going to shit the bed. And the nurses are like, no, you're not. It's just the pressure from the procedure. Like you're just feeling pressure. You're fine. And I was like, no, no, no. And I got out of the bed and I like walk over to the bathroom. They're like, what are you doing? Like you just had surgery. And I'm like, no, no, no. I have to sit down. And I'm like hysterical. And it was just, (laughs) how can we laugh at, I mean, holy no, God. no, no. It was so funny. It was like the nurses, all the nurses were laughing about it because they were just like, most people are, then do not have that reaction. Like, but the fact that I was up and moving around like two hours later, my husband hadn't even been brought up to the recovery room yet. And I was like running to the bathroom. <laughs> 
So, so I, I have another question that's totally unrelated. So this is happening. You guys just bought a house. Yeah. You've been an attorney. You haven't worked, well, like off and on for two years because your son is two, right? Right, right. Financially, where are you guys at? I mean, that's a scary, oh. I mean, right? I, yeah. Because so. you're kind of laid out at this point. As of November, you're like- Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. We're like way fucked. Um, yeah. 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 No, it's been pretty, it's, yeah, no, it's been pretty bad. Um, so we, we had kind of envisioned that once we were settled in the house, I would go back to work and I was looking at jobs and applying and, um, also, you know, talking about the second baby and would figure, you know, okay, like we're settled in the suburbs now. Like I can work and, you know, that was kind of the game plan. Um, obviously that all went out the window. And so I, um, and we, our health insurance was not great. We realized, um, (laughs) about six months ago when we got, we got hit with like 13 grand in medical bills, like out of pocket expenses in three weeks. It was insane. And after like spending, you know, all of our savings on this house and it was just, it was just bad. So we're like, okay, you know what, whatever. Like it's, it is what it is. Uh, so we just kind of were like, we'll take, you know, take the bills as they come and kind of, you know, pay them down piece by piece. And if, you know, at at what price do you put on your health? Exactly. But, um, in our case, it was, you know, five figures. <laughs> like, um, so I, you know, and I had started, I had started blogging just, just as a way to kind of keep my family and friends in, uh, you know, kind of connected to what was going on. And it was just so much easier to say, just go check out my blog. I try to update it once a week with something, you know, either, a um, you know, an update on my health or kind of an, an advocacy or informational educational stuff about breast cancer. Um, and I've started branching out into doing, you know, bringing in pieces from other people to kind of create a community of, um, you know, of newly diagnosed men, women, people who are in this, this kind of no man's land of what do you do when your whole world comes crashing down? So in the midst of this, when you're trying to basically keep your shit together, you yeah. start this blog. I mean, it was a great way to do it. It's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was the one place where I was able to kind of process everything. And, and by writing it down, I was able to kind of create, I I felt more in charge of my own narrative and it really illuminated to me that this is my story. It gave me some mastery over it. And I've, I've had so many people. I mean, now I think my family is probably, you know, kind of the people that read it the least because they interact with me more, but it's, it's, people have started to visit it. And I've had, I think, I mean, I'm, I, I, it's not nothing, but it's, I think I'm like at almost like a hundred thousand page views, which is, uh, a not insignificant thing for a, a little blog that was started to talk about boobs. 
And um, yeah, so I, it's, I, I've had people reach out to me from all over saying that, you know, they've read my blog and then, you know, realized they had to get a mammogram or they were just diagnosed too. And it's, it's been a really powerful community. And I think that that's really important because if you don't feel like you can share your story yourself, you can find shelter in someone else's in the similarities. And that's been very cathartic for, for me and for other people who are reading it as well. How that's like, that's amazing that it helped you with your journey. It helped you keep in touch and, that's fantastic. So I want to jump back to January. You're taking the meds because I know we just said you had a hysterectomy too. Right, right. Yeah. So the spoiler meds- alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> no uterus. Um, and uh, yeah, so they make me more fatigued. My white blood cell count is is decreased, but not to the level of chemo. So I have fatigue. I gain, you know, part of it, is, one of the side effects is weight gain, which was super fun. And <laughs> we, um, everybody loves that. Every, it was like the best side effect. And I'm being <laughs> so sarcastic here because it was awful and continues to be awful and is probably the worst part about all of this. I, I mean, mean, like, apart yeah, from the it's, cancer, uh, like, yeah, well, yeah, you have cancer. So yeah. weight's really, I mean, like you, you right. always say, well, I'm still here. So the weight's not a big deal. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. But like adding insult to injury. Right. But right. it like really sucks. Um, yeah. And, and so I have a little bit of fatigue. We end up enrolling my son in part-time preschool just down the street. We found this spectacular little program that has been super supportive and wonderful. And I'm obsessed with them. They're like our second family out here because we don't have any local family. And, um, yeah. And, and so I slowly start to like, I mean, part of me feels like this was like a, a, like a new rebirth. Like I feel like I was kind of gestating myself in some ways and now I'm coming out into this new life and I'm realizing that I'm, I'm, I'm still really living it and really experiencing it. And in many better and more kind of powerful ways. But, um, but the fatigue sucked, the weight gain sucked. Uh, I last winter was awful because Felix brought home every single preschool cold known to man. And so we were always at urgent care. And you're, so it's got to have killed your immune system. Oh yeah, no, not as bad as I thought. I thought it was going to be worse, um, but I never got to the point where uh, they had to like take me off of the meds in order to get bumped back up. So like they do blood work every month just to check my white blood cell count among other things. And, and it always, I always just kind of hung in there. It never looked too bad. So uh, I was able to continue treatment and they just would pop me on some antibiotics if I got a sinus infection or one time I was on some steroids for a chest infection, but you know, they, they monitored things really well and it was annoying at the time, but it was never frightening in the way that I think that it could have in other been in other circumstances. And you, so they have, of course, have to scan you at some point and you did not have the mastectomy. I didn't. No, no. um, You're still here. 
And yeah. so they scanned you like three and a half months later, April. They they scan me every three months. Okay. So um, I actually have a scan, my fourth scan next Tuesday. So um, fingers crossed that everything looks nice and stable and very boring. So my scans have been really good so far. I've had a really significant decrease in my the size and it uh metabolic intensity of everything. Um, a lot of my bone metastases are just scar tissue at this point. Uh, not to say they'll stay that way forever, but for now, that's what they are. And it's a huge lesson, lesson to kind of live in the present because I don't know what it's going, what they're going to look like in three months or six months, but right now they look okay. So so at first it looked better and you kept on the medication and then in July it looked stable, which I mean, that's, yeah. that's six months from finding out you have stage four cancer. What are they calling it at that point in July when the, the scan was stable? So th the thing about metastatic breast cancer is that you're never not stage four. You're never not on treatment. You're never not cured necessarily. I mean, you can have no evidence of disease, but I'm a ways away from that. So when they're stable, that just means that they're not making things worse, that they're just hanging out. It's like, it's like that kid that never really like leaves his parents' basement, but they're not getting in trouble. They're just playing video games all day and there's just kind of this low level of annoyance. That's kind of how I picture... <laughs> these tumors like they're just kind of that kid in the basement that play video plays video games that is hilarious that that's how you see your cancer <laughs> i mean it's kind of like you got to live with them but you don't pay them too much attention like they don't get more attention than they deserve but you got to feed them or not feed them at this point right <laughs> you gotta, okay you know, so, house them so at what point so you why was the decision to never do the mastectomy? Why was that? Sorry, what was that? Why was the decision to never do the mastectomy? Why was that a worst route? Um, so when you're stage four, the mastectomy is done to eliminate cancer from your body. So traditionally they don't do a mastectomy with stage four people because the cancer is already spread. So you're not going to eliminate the cancer. You're going to put yourself through a pretty hard traumatic surgery at, you know, with the possibility of infection for your body to still have cancer in it. And with, with my tumor makeup, they, um, they think that doing the hormone therapy first is probably going to be the most effective line of treatment anyway, that it's, uh, and it, and it, the, the tumor itself has shrunk by like a third, like it's, it's been really responsive because the, the therapy that I'm on just kind of starves it. So, okay. Um, yeah. yeah. I wanted that so, to make sense to my brain. Right. Right. You know, and it's, it's so interesting because, they, that's always the question that I get is like, why not surgery and why not chemo? And kind of the, the, the two prong answer is that number one, surgery 
is only effective if they know they can get everything out. And at this point, they can't take out most of my bones. Like I can't live without a spine. So damn it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Um, I'm, I'm really kind of getting to that point where I'm just going to be the bionic woman. And, um, but no, they, they, they were like, no, you got to keep your spine. I'm like, well, shit. Like <laughs> that ruins all of my plans. <laughs> That's super annoying. And, okay. Um, that makes yeah. sense. I, I mean, for someone like me who hasn't had the experience, I would wonder, well, why not get rid of as much as you can? Doesn't that yeah. and, and that's, body less? Well, and it's, and it's such a valid, it's a totally valid question. And it's, it's um, because I, there was something that I, it was hard for me to wrap my head around. I was like, why don't you just do chemo and just blast those suckers into outer space? And they're like, that is going to make you super sick and it's going to weaken your healthy organs and it's not a guaranteed fix. Like people still have progression after chemo and people still have cancer come back after chemo. It's not a, a, a golden ticket. So they said, do these hormone treatments because that's the most effective first line treatment. And you're still going to have a pretty good quality of life and you'll keep your hair. So uh, to me, it was like, oh, okay. Let's, no, let's it's, it's much better. Yeah. It's a much better option. So can you ever not be on the medication? I will never not be on. I mean, okay. unless someone comes out with a cure um, and can definitively eradicate the disease from my body for good, I will never not be on a medication. Okay. So so now take me through what, what your doctor... Now, you guys were trying to have a baby. At what point did you know that that was... How soon did you know that was not an option? Um, well, when we got the initial diagnosis, uh, we figured that was pretty much on hold. And then they said, well, you know, we, we usually like to do hormone treatments for like five years after, which we figured, okay, that would put me at, you know, 38, 39. Okay. That's still kind of reasonable. Maybe we thought about freezing embryos and, you know, we just, we, we looked into it and it was, the timing was bad. It was really expensive. Our insurance didn't cover it. Then when we found out that I was stage four, my oncologist point blank said, you're never going to carry another child. It will kill you. And like, those were her words, the end, full stop. Like, she's like, you, your cancer is driven by estrogen and getting pregnant would force you to not only go off treatment, but, um, I'm oh, sorry. Um, but, um, it would create an estrogen storm in your body and your cancer would just have a field day. So no way are you going to have another baby. So we just said, you know what, that's, that's the way our family's going to look. We have one little boy who's awesome and hilarious and wonderful. And we hit it out of the park with him and like, you know, like it's not the worst thing in the world. I it's it's been sad and it's been something that I've mourned, but it's also been like, okay, I'm still here. I'm getting great treatment, and I have one kid. I'm not dealing with two kids or a newborn or a pregnancy while I'm getting this diagnosis. I have one kid who's two. He's walking, talking, you know, getting more and more self-sufficient every day. And I get to watch him grow up and focus my energy on him. So I'm like, we're good. 
Uh, and I love your attitude and I, to- I totally get it. But that, again, it's adding insult to injury. It was a big blow. And it still is. It's still, it's still really, really hard to see other, to see babies and friends and other people, other families, like having these bigger families that will never be an option for us or have someone kind of not realizing, you know, say, oh, when are you going to give Felix a sibling? And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'll just say, well, never because I have incurable cancer. Uh, and um, that's a that's a tough conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, you know, you wanna you wanna ask those questions. You got to sit with the answer. Like, I agree. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah, and so um, you know, the thing that drives me the most crazy is when people won't really accept that as an answer and say, well, you you can always adopt. No, no adoption agency will adopt to someone with a terminal illness. <laughs> Or, you know, you could use a surrogate. Well, we didn't freeze embryos and now I don't have a uterus or ovaries. So, you know, they are medical waste. So that's not an option. Um, And, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, I have to sit with that discomfort every day because that's my reality. And I think that if, if more people would recognize that they don't need to fix it, they don't need to have an answer that's going to make me feel better, that just their acknowledgement of that tough situation is really the best thing they could do to honor that. Like it's, 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 uh, it's it's always it's always so strange to me that people are always so quick to try to make me feel better like i'm like do you think that like oh thanks i hadn't explored that option <laughs> like we explored right. them all yeah i, I know yeah. you did and it's all, it's been nine and a half months too since you yeah. first found out i mean this has been a really whirlwind last eight nine months too it's been yeah So the decision to get the hysterectomy, now I understand why the mastectomy is not happening. So because it's estrogen driven, you want to remove everything. Right. Well, so I was getting these shots that were putting me into chemical menopause. They were really hard on my body. And so I talked it over with my doctor and I was also having, um, well, so I talked it over with my doctor and she said, you know, you're a really good candidate to just have the, um, have your ovaries removed, which is called an ovarectomy, which is a lot of fun to say. <laughs> and, um, and so she was like, you know, you, let's, let's get a consult with the surgeon and the surgeon agreed I was a great candidate. But at the time in one of my scans, we were noticing I was having some like abnormal, I had some abnormal cell growth in my cervix. And so they looked at that and they said, you know, we're already in there. It's only another 15 minutes. It's really not going to change your recovery. Let's just take everything out. And then that is, you do not have to worry about that tissue whatsoever. And I talked it over with my doctors and kind of looked at the research and information. I was like, yeah, no tissue, no issue. Like let's, um, let's get it done. So I ended up having my ovaries, tubes, and uterus and cervix all removed. And, um, 
I, I, you know, I just woke up super relieved after I stopped freaking out about having to poop. Like I just, woke up. <laughs> <There was> I, <laughs> oh my God. Well, there was that. Yeah. That was, <laughs> but I was just so relieved. Like once the initial drugs were off and they gave me different drugs, I was just sitting there like, okay, these pain meds are fabulous. And I'm really, really relieved that this is all over. I never have to get those shots again. So being in uh, surgical menopause is, is now the new terminology for it. And that's been a huge relief because I don't have to get, I don't, my, my body is having to adjust to this full new normal. And I've had this huge hormone shift and like, um, it, it's been really weird, but I, can just be aware of it and be like, okay, eventually things will level out. But um, yeah, I'm I'm really glad that we did it and that it's over and I don't have to get any further shots to for the menopause. But you know, just, just it was such a huge decision to say, you know what, I'm not only are we not having any more kids, I'm not even going to have any more lady parts, like. Okay, so I had a hysterectomy. Yeah, so you know. <laughs> yep, and um, the I they took out everything except my ovaries, just in yeah. case they were putting off some hormone, because um, you don't want to get slammed into menopause. You right. You got the shots. Did that kind of bridge the gap a little bit? For it did. It it so I I got slammed into menopause on. Uh, December 18th of 2017, I walked in that office that morning, a fully ovulating, you know, 32-year-old and walked out of the office in full menopause. Because <laughs> that is exceptionally, I can't imagine. I've, it, I've was it was brutal. Brutal, but, yeah. But everything else around that time was also brutal, so I don't really, I can't really separate the two. Um I, I don't really like have any sort of, I just had hot flashes, but I, I can't really separate the two because I was also in such shock about the diagnosis and trying to, you know, get started with treatment and get my, you know, figure out what we were going to do with, what is our life going to look like at this point? I walked around for weeks thinking I was just going to keel over and die. And like, I didn't know what, what it meant to live with an incurable disease. And, um, and, and so like piece by piece, I started figuring out what that means and what that looks like, but it was a huge push mentally, physically, emotionally, um, physiologically, uh, and trying to educate myself about how to, uh, how to navigate that illness as a part of my life. And now with the hysterectomy, so when I had mine and it's been, 14 and a half years. And um, I felt a lot better in some ways personally, because yeah. my, a lot of my issues were all uterine and cervical. So it was like being 15 again, no periods, no PMS, no. Oh yeah. Oh I mean, yeah. Like, I love that part. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. that is a perk. <laughs> Not going to lie. That, like, that was a perk, but I felt like somehow you look at, I would look at women who are pregnant and even if even if you don't want to have kids or yeah. you, know, you can't have kids or whatever, I felt less than as a woman because I was missing all my lady parts, like you said. 
absolutely. I I felt I feel that too. And, it, and it's, it's so dumb. So, it, it's, well, so it's dumb, but it's so, so present. Dumb. And it's so <laughs> but it's so hard not to throw yourself a pity party, especially now in the age of social media, because everyone's only showing you a highlight reel. Like, you know, you see a picture of a happy family with a smiling, cute, cooing baby with the chunky thighs and the big, you know, big brother, big sister giving them a kiss. And like, what you don't see is the fact that that baby spit up all over everyone two minutes later and the older siblings whacking the baby over the head with a toy and mom was up six times last night or dad and everyone is screaming at each other and and they're bickering and like you don't see that everyone has their own shit and like it's it's really really hard to feel like my life is good where it is and how it is and what it is when we're so inundated with the fact that there's kind of this superimposed model of what we should be creating and and frankly if we're actually doing that, like how boring would that be? Yeah. Like, like how boring would that be if everyone was doing the exact same thing as everyone else? Like sometimes that's what's so boring about social media is that you see all of these very kind of unoriginal filtered, you know, structured posed pictures when you're just like, you just show me some real shit. Like I, I, I want to dig deeper. Right. Um, now um, they aren't taking your boobs and they're not taking your bones. So mm-hmm. those are two things off limits. So basically yeah. removing anything estrogen related and no issue with the tissue. I love that. Um, yeah. You basically got out anything that could have created more of a problem. Correct. That's our hope. Um, so the, the, the ovaries produce, I think like 90% of your body's hormones, but that's, you know, estrogen and progesterone, um, which also can, you know, my, my tumor is slightly progesterone positive, but mostly estrogen positive. It's without getting too much into the, the, uh, nuances of it. So the, hopefully between that and my, daily medication that um, hopefully they have everything that, knock on wood, could create further problems. Now that said, like there's still, there's still tumor tissue in my body now, like that can, uh, Charlie's (laughs) always got to make his appearance, that can, um, you know, mutate and move around and I I don't really know no one really knows what it can do like what it we know kind of what it's likely to do and what kind of its likely pathways are but no one there are very few good predictive models okay especially at stage four because it's so individualized there's stage four that was considered de novo which is stage four out of the gate like me there's stage four um, who've had recurrences and recurrences aren't necessarily in the bones. People get recurrence in the liver, in the lungs, in the brain, in the skin. Like it's, 
and in with all different hormone markers. So you're really stage four is really this like kind of, it's like, it's so individualized. It's real. It can be very difficult to treat and certainly difficult to fund and do research for, which is, I think, a lot of reason why it doesn't get the funding and research attention that the earlier stages do. Um, so your new normal is very different with not a lot of information and doing the best you can at the time. And you're just addressing things as they come. Basically. Right, right. I mean, we're just, yeah, making it up as we go, which is terrifying. But also, I mean, I, I'd like to think that I could very well be part of, you know, the group of primarily women, but, you know, the group of people who are creating the next you know, this next wave of breast cancer information and advocacy and working towards levels of treatment that we can't possibly fathom. Like the treatment that I'm on is only three years old. And so in another three years, who knows what's going to be available? Like who, you know, who knows what could be coming down the pipeline? So, wow, that's yeah. crazy. Right? So you started this blog that's now kind of blossomed. You're starting to get more in, inspiration and stories from people. Right. And you're getting ready to start a podcast. So tell me about what you're doing. Are you doing law at all anymore? So I'm not. I'm not doing, I'm not practicing law. But the funny thing how life works, because getting this diagnosis and starting the podcast and being able to or starting the blog and now the podcast and being able to write and interact with people and have this kind of kind of this case manager mentality has given me the set of skills that I was like I couldn't imagine having a better skill set to manage this diagnosis in a way that doesn't just let me manage it for myself, but allows me to manage it that in a way that is useful to other people. So my, on the, my blog, I've started doing educational pieces about what is breast cancer. Like, let's learn about breast cancer because I didn't really have any sense of what it was before this. And I'm hoping in the next few months to put together a, an organizer for uh, people living with breast cancer to help them organize their appointments, organize all the information that gets thrown at you in one place. And um, starting the podcast, the working title um, being The Intersection of Cancer and Life, which will hopefully be out next month, to be able to shed light on the fact that you know these cancer stories are not just it's never just about cancer. It's about, you know, these, these are life issues, not just cancer issues and how people are able to find, you know, find this path from their diagnosis to create not just a new normal, but, uh, you know, create something because of their diagnosis and not despite of it. So it's, it's been very wonderful to me, quite frankly, to be able to really dig deep with the cancer community and the people who 
are surrounding us. Like, and no one wants to be like, oh, you have cancer? Okay, fuck you. Like, <laughs> you know, people are, are generally very kind and embracing. And, and I think that that is forgotten a lot this day and age, that, that people really want to know and hold you in their hearts and sometimes just don't necessarily know how to do that. So, you know, by opening up and in starting the dialogue, people are able to feel much more at ease with, okay, let's, let me ask questions. Like, let me talk about this and let's, let's continue this conversation. Unless I was presented with the opportunity to talk to you about this, I wouldn't have even had the questions. You know, you don't, right. you kind of don't know what you don't know. We, right. every time we're presented with new information, we, and, and even like we bought a, a, a car for our daughter and I'd never seen the car before. I see them freaking everywhere now. Yeah. So I can guarantee yeah. in the next two weeks, I'm going to somehow or another have three conversations about cancer. Right. It's one right. of those things that until things are front of mind, they don't exist in our reality. So starting that conversation is huge. Well, and if you think about it, one in eight women are going to be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. One in eight. Like, that's not a small number. That's you go to the country club or the gym or you know, the, the grocery store and you see eight women. And of those eight women, one of you is going to get breast cancer. That's and and those women have family they have they have parents and and siblings and sometimes children and friends and it's a community issue it's a community health issue it's not an individual issue so if we're not having conversations about it we're not figuring out what we can do as a community to uh, to both learn how to detect breast cancer, learn how to take care of those of us who have breast cancer and learn how to, uh, you know, fund different organizations that are working towards more effective treatments to keep us all around longer. Like it's, it's a conversation that, that that doesn't necessarily have an easy starting point, but once you start with it, it's a really rewarding conversation to have because everyone comes away feeling empowered. Thank you so much for sharing it with me and letting me ask all of my questions and yeah, just be you your uninhibited self. I, I appreciate you so much. You can oh, use thank that. you. Yeah. <laughs> be your so uninhibited. Thank I, you. I, I, I can't not be my uninhibited self. And I think maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's been working to my advantage, but um, you know, it's thank you for letting me be here and letting me kind of blabber on about, uh, you know, about all this stuff because it's, I mean, it's important, but it's also, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so cathartic from my space to be able to say, Hey, you know, yeah, I got this shitty diagnosis, but you know, I'm also still here. Like I'm still living a very important, meaningful life. And that shouldn't just be written off by the fact that I have stage four cancer. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor rerouting. 
like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.